0: Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles DeHart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles DeHart.
1: Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Parks Weekly Podcast, where we'll provide you with information you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Charles Dehart, and I will not be joined today by Kevin. He's out of our most recent acquisition in Pennsylvania, so you're stuck with me for this one. Uh, We'll make it a good show regardless. For this show, I'll be walking you through some considerations for determining your investing criteria. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you guys about the free 30 minute phone call that Kevin and I offer. If you haven't heard already, we make ourselves available to both aspiring park owners or, uh, or those that are already in the industry. There's absolutely no ulterior motive with these calls and we can discuss anything your heart desires as long as it's regarding mobile home parks. So maybe you're working on a deal and you like our perspective on it. Maybe you're just getting started and you'd like to discuss the business in further detail. Uh, you know whatever it is. You know Kevin and I are making ourselves available for these 30 minutes and uh, there's no strings attached. So, if you'd like to schedule that thirty-minute call, uh, just go on over and send us an email to freecall@mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Again, that's freecall@mobilehomeparkacademy.com, and we'll send you back our availability. Um, you know, be sure to include a little background about yourself and uh, what you'd like to talk about in the call, and uh, and we'll and we'll send you our calendar link, and, and you can go ahead and schedule that call. So, without further ado, let's get let's get onto the investing criteria. Um, and basically what I've done is I've broken this down to more of like a 10,000 foot view of what, you know, what you may or may not consider investing in. Uh, this is, you know, by no means a complete list, but it's a fairly good list to start with if you're just getting started in the business. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to look at the size of the park as it relates to your investing criteria. Um, we're going to look at the, the benefits of either a turnaround park or versus a stabilized park. Um we're going to look at the characteristics of a family park versus a senior park. We're going to talk about lifestyle choice parks. So if you've never heard about that, that business model, um, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce you to that, uh, to that uh, style of park. Uh, we're going to look at private utilities versus municipal utilities. We're going to look at management style. And we're going to look at target returns. So for the first thing, we're going to look at size of the park. And the first thing we need to consider is your proximity to the markets that you're looking to invest in. So let's say, you know, we've you've heard us talk about this before. Uh, let's say you're in California and you're looking to invest in a mobile home park that's, let's say, in North Carolina or maybe it's in the Midwest even. Um, and you're looking at park deals that are around 30 spaces, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30 spaces. Um, the proximity comes into play because of the travel costs that are associated. You, you really, the, the park doesn't produce enough revenue to efficiently offset the travel, especially if you were to buy a turnaround park where you might need to travel out there four, five, six times in that first year. So the travel can really eat up the, uh, it can really eat into your bottom line on a on a smaller park. So you have to look at that. If, if you're looking at smaller park deals and let's say you're you're all the way on the west coast and you're looking at stuff more in the east coast, you have to be sensitive to that uh, when you're running your numbers, when you're building your your profit and loss to evaluate what what your first year and second year and third year is going to look like now the next thing is economies of scale you know obviously when you buy smaller parks of let's say 10 or 12 14 spaces uh, when you do a rent raise it's it's a lot less significant in in those uh, the size of parks so with economies of scale again that also comes into play with travel and other fixed costs or infrastructure repairs um, it's just really hard for a park that produces a very low amount of revenue to absorb uh, any kind of capital costs or any kind of large fixed expenses. Uh, rent raises aren't as significant, like I said. Um, and that's that's why they're not as desirable. Um, and the next thing we'll look at is exit strategy. So for this exit strategy, you're mainly looking at you know, obviously you you most of us are buy and hold investors, but you also have to look at What happens when you want to sell the property? You know, your property has to be attractive to the next buyer. So just the truth of the matter is is that most 15 space parks out there are not very attractive to most buyers out there in in the marketplace. And the reason is is because the biggest reason uh, it probably has to relate to uh, financing. It's very hard to finance parks that are, let's say, smaller than 25 spaces. Um, Again, the economies of scale aren't as attractive, so when you buy that 15-space park, oftentimes you'll run the challenges when you sell it, and you you might actually even be stuck with holding the paper on that, with having to sell or finance it just to exit from the, from the property. And that's that's not usually what you want uh, to do. Typically, is to sell or finance to your next buyer, or to have to sell or finance to the next buyer. I should say. Okay, so. Again, for us, for, for me and Kevin, we focus on parks that are about 50 spaces and above. That's, that's usually our minimum is 50 spaces. We do have parks that are smaller than that, but our minimum is, is typically 50 spaces. Um, and we like to, we, we will do smaller parks. Let's say let's say there's a 15 space park in a market that we already own a, a 50 space park in. Uh, we will buy that 15 space park in that market because our exit strategy could be potentially tied to that 50 space park. So our exit is still pretty good um, and that's generally our criteria when it comes to the size of the park. Okay. The next thing we'll look at is turnaround versus stabilized parks and for turnaround I've basically got four classifications of turnaround. Uh, the first one is a major infrastructure turnaround, uh, the second one is a vacancy turnaround as it relates to vacant pads, and the third one is a vacancy turnaround as it relates to homes. So let's say you have a bunch of vacant homes uh, in the park. There's, there's a big difference between pads and homes. And then and the last one is operational turnaround. Okay, so for the first one, and we see this quite often, I think a lot of newer investors think that if they can fix this problem, you know, obviously the pricing is usually attractive on these types of parks or seemingly attractive is the major infrastructure turnaround. Uh, the one that comes to mind for me is a, it's an REO deal that was on the market about three months, three or four months ago in uh, Minnesota, uh, and it was it was t- being taken to auction. It was a really nice looking 200 space park, and it had a failed uh, wastewater treatment plant on the property. And it, it seemed like the starting bid was very reasonable, and it looked like it could potentially be a reasonable purchase, or at least worth attending the auction. Okay. But with those major infrastructure turnarounds, you have to be extremely well capitalized to do that, and you also have to ask yourself the question: Is that the most efficient use of my capital uh, to dump all of that capital into the park like that? So if, if you're if you're having to replace a treatment plant, um, you know if you if you got to replace one with another, then you might be out of pocket a half a million dollars. Um, even if you're tying into the city sewer, you've you've still got you know, you might potentially have a lift station that you have to pump the the sewage uphill to the city's connection. Then you have tap fees, which in some markets can be extremely high. Um, you know, so there's a lot of considerations with those with those infrastructure turnarounds. The same thing with uh, there was another park about a year ago that we that we looked at that they had a failed well. The well had been contaminated, and they could no longer use the well. And that park owner was having to, you know, there was no municipal water around so he had to truck the water in and um, it was extremely expensive to bring water in it was about a hundred space park but to bring enough water in to service that hundred space park was extraordinarily expensive uh, when done by truck and that was basically the only thing they had left they couldn't drill a new well they, they couldn't use the existing well and they couldn't tie to a municipal water system so essentially that park was sort of doomed okay that was one you really couldn't turn around so again, major infrastructure turnaround, probably not the type of thing that you want to venture into your first time into the business, but, um, you know, there, there are opportunities to make money at those, those types of parks, but it is, does require a lot of capital and, uh, and it is a very large project. Okay. The next one is a vacancy turnaround when it comes to pads. And we this one is even more common for newer investors to, to think that they can come into this scenario and, um, have a very like a very easy success with it. Uh, with this scenario, it's getting a little bit easier in the industry with Clayton doing the 21st, uh, 21st mortgage the cash program. It's a little bit easier to do these types of parks, but again the park has to sort of qualify for their program. So you know you can get a finance company involved to help finance your customers' homes, but it's still a pretty big job to bring those homes in to find the right kind of clientele for those homes and to, and to get those transactions done. Um, it, it's, it's a longer process than what I think most people think it is. Uh, we're, we're dealing with it right now in a park that we own that has about 50 vacant pads, and it, it's not an easy process. And if you, if you can't use their program and you have to actually go out into the marketplace and buy used homes and bring them in, again, it's very capital intensive. Um, you usually can't recapture that capital you know, instantly or anything like that. So you might be able to buy a, a $10,000 or $15,000 home, bring it in. You might, you might have $15,000, $20,000 into that home after, you're, after it's all said and done. It's very unlikely that you're going to get a customer that's going to come in and pay all cash for that so that you can recoup all of that, that capital. So again, vacancy turnarounds are not usually as capital intensive as the major infrastructure ones, but it does require that you are well capitalized to handle that, that situation. The next one is we're going to talk about a vacancy turnaround as it comes to homes. Okay, now with this one, you know, you've got let's let's say we can use our park in Atlanta, for example. We had it, we've got a 30 35-space park, it has 30, it had 32, essentially 32 vacant homes on the property when it was purchased. Uh, I think maybe one or two of those was had a tenant in it. Um, for that one, it's still capital intensive. But not to the degree that the vacant pads are. So, you know, we came in, we put about four or five thousand dollars into each home, did a major lease up, which is an effort. Don't don't make the mistake of thinking that's not an effort. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we are posting Craigslist ads twice a day, so that we're basically we've got 20, twenty, thirty Craigslist ads just on a, just on a continuous cycle. Um, we're sending mailers out to apartment complexes to try to poach some of their tenants. We're setting out tons and tons of bandit signs. Um, it's a major marketing effort even to just try to fill 30 or so park-owned homes and try to get that done within six months to a year. So it is a major marketing effort to do that, and there isn't some capital that needs to go into those homes in order for those homes to be attractive enough to attract the right customers. But uh, there, the vacancy turnaround is, is going to be much easier to do than the infrastructure or the vacancy when it comes to PADS. Okay. Uh, And then the last one is our personal favorite, which is the operational turnaround. This has been virtually all of our parks have been operational turnarounds. And if it were me and I was new and I was listening to this podcast, this would be the one that I would go after is the vacancy or the operational turnaround. That's the one that I would focus the majority of my attention on finding is that operational turnaround. What I mean by that is coming into a park that you know, it, it has below-market rents, um, maybe there's an operational problem that it has, maybe it's, it's spending just way too much money, and you know that you can cut those expenses. Um, those are the types of parks that we really love to buy, and we're currently under contract for two more right now, one in Alabama, one in Kentucky. And, um, you know, those, those fit our model uh, very well. We've done, we've done one of the vacancy turnaround parks when it comes to pads, one when it comes to homes. And we're up to five right now in the operational with two more being added uh, by the end of November. Um, And then the last one we'll talk about is the stabilized park, okay? The stabilized park is basically what we try to do. We try to position every park that we buy to be essentially a stabilized park. So these would be parks where you have rents that are, essentially at market, um, you're you're, you're running about maybe 80, 90% occupied. Um, You don't have a whole lot of park-owned homes, so you might have only 10% of your homes are park-owned. The expenses are all normalized, and it's a well-run machine. Typically, the stabilized park will demand a better cap rate from the market. So, we obviously, we try to take a messed up, a, basically a screwed up park, and turn it into that stabilized park because there there is a certain sector of buyers that only do these stabilized parks. That's the only thing they're interested in. They're okay with the lower returns, uh, but they want that stabilized asset it doesn't require them to do to do too much sweat. Doesn't have to not have to put too much sweat equity into it. Okay. So that's what that's we try to do is we try to take it from a turnaround to a stabilized asset so it's attractive you know, if and when we decide to exit. It's attractive to that, to that group of buyers.
2: Hey, guys. Kevin Bupp here from the Mobile Home Park Academy. I'm very sorry for interrupting your show, but I have something really special I'd like to share with you. If you haven't heard already, Charles and I are offering something really cool here at the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast, and I just wanted to make sure that you knew about it. We're offering a free 30-minute phone consultation with the two of us, where you can ask us anything that you like about Mobile Home Park Investing. Maybe you're brand new and you just have a few questions that you'd like answered. Or maybe you want to run a deal past us and have us help you walk through the evaluation process. Or maybe you're an already experienced park owner and you just want to bounce a few ideas off of us. Whatever it is, Charles and I, we're very excited to speak with you. And there's absolutely no ulterior motive with these calls, so you don't need to worry about us trying to upsell you or pitch you on some kind of product or service. These calls are simply our way of giving back and connecting with others who share our same passion for this business. And just to reiterate, it doesn't matter if you're brand new or a seasoned investor. These calls are open to everyone. But there is one catch. It has to relate to mobile home parks. And so if you'd like to schedule that free 30-minute call with Charles and I, please send an email to free call at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Again, free call at mobilehomeparkacademy.com and almost immediately you'll receive an email back with a link to our calendar. And if you haven't received that email within five minutes or so, be sure to check your junk folder, okay? Sometimes it ends up there. And when you go to schedule that time on our calendar, please include a little background on yourself as well as what you'd like to discuss on our call, but please be sure that it relates to mobile home parks. Charles and I really look forward to connecting with you and we look forward to helping you in your journey to success as a mobile home park investor. Now let's get back to the show. Uh, The next thing is family parks versus senior parks.
1: And this this happens with apartment complexes too. You have senior apartment complexes just like you do in mobile home parks Uh, but typically the characteristics for a family park is that a family park usually have no amenities Um, it's usually kind of a working-class park you know you got a blue blue, blue blue-collar client base Um, and they're a little easier to manage than a senior park you know the the clientele they you know they don't usually require they don't usually care about having a pool they don't care about having shuffleboard or a tennis court or anything like that Um, they just want a nice quiet safe place to live and um, that, that they really hold you to, and you know, that's a that's kind of the standard that you're held to. Is if you can provide that, then you've got a very large client base to choose your tenants from. Okay. Now, with a senior park, you know these senior parks more more often than not they provide amenities, you know, such as the pools, the shuffleboard, the tennis courts. Some of them even have golf courses and things of that nature. Uh, you know, walking trails provide Wi-Fi to their tenants you know, all sorts of things. Um, typically these customers are more demanding. Okay. Um, I guess we'll take a step back. You know, the senior park is defined as basically a 55 and older. That's usually how it's defined as. And typically it's about, you have to, to have that designation, you have to have about 80% of your tenant base has to be 55 and older. Okay. Um, So again, the amenities, you know, the more demanding customers, and then if you are looking, if you want to be in the business of buying senior parks, which there's nothing wrong with that, the largest company in mobile home parks is ELS, and they own almost exclusively senior parks. Um, But if you want to be in that business, it it requires you to do a lot better diligence when you go in to make sure that you actually have a demand for that demographic. You You know, obviously... Florida is an area where senior parks are most common or maybe more or less like vacation type areas. You know, certain places of Arizona, they're pretty common. Um, so you, you just have to make sure that there actually is a demand from that demographic. And I'll give you an example um, of what that could look like when you do not have a demand from that demographic. Uh, we looked at a park, I think it was in Michigan not too long ago, and uh, it was a, the park that we were looking at was a family park, and it was only two parks in the entire town. It was, a, it was kind of a smaller town, about 10,000 people. Uh, the park that we were looking at, uh, the lot rents in that park were about $325 a month, and, our, and the park that we were looking at was completely full. There wasn't, wasn't a vacant home, a vacant pad. There was not a vacancy to, to, to be seen. Um, and down the road from it, the other park in town, the only other park in town was a senior park. And it, had, it was a lot nicer, a lot newer. It had a pool. Um the homes were new and it had some vacancy issues and its lot rent was $100 below the family park that demo, that that particular marketplace just didn't have the demand from that demographic and it it was crippling that particular business but on the flip side in Florida a lot of those senior parks demand lot rents that are $100 or $200 higher than the family parks. Okay, so you just have to make sure that if, you, if you're gonna go into that business, you actually have demand for the demographic that you're going after. The next thing we'll talk about is lifestyle choice. Um, and I wasn't originally gonna include this in, in our discussion, but um, I was down in, in, down in Clearwater visiting Kevin a couple a few days ago, and I we, we went into a park just having a look around and uh, it was, it was basically a lifestyle choice park. And what I mean by that is that the tenants were choosing the lifestyle of living in a mobile home park. Um, This particular park was a senior community. It was a nice park, uh, had nice new homes, had a couple of, uh, had a lot of double wides, even had some triple wides in there. And it was a nice park. It was very close to the water and a very desirable area, uh, walking distance to, uh, you know, a lot of retail, a lot of, lot of stuff to do around there. Um, had a good deal of amenities, but the the homes in that park would typically transact for right, right around forty or fifty thousand. So the customers were typically paying about forty or fifty thousand dollars for each one of these homes, and the lot rent in the community was seven hundred dollars a month. So you know, obviously in Clearwater, I mean, the, the rents are obviously going to be high in, in that marketplace. But if you were to go maybe a half a mile down the road, there was a a nice condo development where you could have bought a 70 80 90 thousand dollar condo you know basically in that same general area and your association fee in that condo was 225 dollars so the people that live in that mobile home park were actively making the lifestyle choice not to live in the condo okay so the condo was actually the more affordable option in that in that market but the residents were choosing to live in the mobile home park. Now, you know, that that's fine and dandy. That park was having no problem filling their vacancies, um, and that's great, but lifestyle choice presents that increased risk factor that you're competing with other forms of housing, and not only competing in certain cases, but sometimes that other form of housing is much more affordable. So, we do not like lifestyle choice parks. We do not even look at them, and uh, we, we would not likely invest in those types of types of properties. Um, So I just wanted to kind of bring that up just so you're aware of it and you can be on the lookout for it if if you come across it. The next thing we look at is we'll look at private utilities versus municipal utilities. And for this, uh, we own parks on private utilities. We don't, we're not one of those people that say we will never buy a park that's on, you know, septic or wastewater treatment plant or has a well. Um, we, we certainly look at those all the time, and we, we do own a couple of those types of properties. Um, but with the private utility park, again, just like with certain types of turnarounds, you have to be well-capitalized in order to, to get into that business. You have to know what your worst-case scenario is, and, and that can't be something that basically makes your business fail. Okay, So if you, if you do buy a, say, for instance, you're looking at a park that has a wastewater treatment plant, Um, you have to basically look at that park. You have to kind of try to figure out when some of the major infrastructure repairs are going to happen with that treatment plant. Um, And then also keep in mind that you only have one treatment plant there. You know, The city has multiple treatment plants that run in parallel. So if they need to do maintenance on a treatment plant, they can send the sewage to a separate plant. Whereas you don't have that. So a lot of times, even though you technically could repair a wastewater treatment plant in a park a lot of times you can't shut down your park sewer for that month or two months that it takes to to do that so you have to actually just replace the entire system okay so a lot of the major infrastructure repairs that you could do for cheaper you could you could maybe do it for three times cheaper to, to maybe replace certain items on your on your treatment plant you've you actually can't do that you have to replace the whole system because there's no place to send the sewer um, during that time period that your system is down. So you have to understand all of the things that could happen when you own certain private utilities. You have to take a look at what you have, um, get professional opinions on what you have, and, and run an appropriate budget. Okay, So it's a lot harder to budget for private utilities, and there are a lot more you know, big, costly surprises that could happen. Okay, uh, Whereas municipal utilities, you know, there really isn't a whole lot that could happen that, would be, that wouldn't be would be affordable for the park to handle on its own. So, you know, you got a leak here and there. Maybe you have to get a Roto-Rooter man out there to unclog the sewer pipe. Uh, maybe you have to replace certain section of the sewer pipe, put a clean out in, you know, anything like that. Uh, th- those things are typically not that costly. Um, so you just have to be sensitive to that. And you have to understand the type of utility that you're buying. So municipal utilities, you don't really have to understand those all that well. Um, you might run into a, a lift station when you when you own city sewer, but that's about it. And it, that lift stations are pretty easy to understand. But as far as having well and septic and wastewater treatment plants, you have to understand the way those systems work and the potential uh, problems that you could potentially have, and know that you can you can handle those if they come up. Okay. Uh, the next thing is management style. And there's basically two different types. You can either self-manage it yourself. So you can, uh, we're actually buying a park in Kentucky right now where the guy bought the park 18 years ago. The, the park happened to have a, a house on site. And he moved into the park. Um, and that's where he's lived and, and he's managed that mobile home park for the last 18 years. Or you can hire a manager and you can you can manage that manager from wherever you want to. Uh, obviously, we prefer hiring a manager and managing, managing that person uh, from wherever we want to manage them from. It, that's the only thing that's, you know, the self-management is not really scalable. So we want a scalable system so that we can buy more parks. And that's why we hired our managers. Um, I understand that, that, that our business model isn't for everybody. So if you're considering self-managing, the one thing that I would like to put into your head is that when you run your numbers, when you run your pro forma on the park is that you run your pro forma as if you're hiring a manager. So that would keep you from overpaying and it would also keep you from, let's say five years down the road, you're, you basically say, I'm kind of done with this, I don't really like managing a mobile home park, uh, maybe I'll just hire a manager. It gives you the ability to do that and not affect your returns, okay? So that's the only thing that I'll say about that. Self-management, I know we would strongly encourage you not to do that, but if that's what you're set on doing, uh, make sure you're running your numbers as if you're going to put a manager in place so that you buy the property correctly. Now, the last thing that we'll look at is target returns. And for this, I'm just gonna give you guys what we look for, our, our basic target return. And since we buy a lot of operational turnarounds and a lot of times these properties are very screwed up, uh, what we don't say, this this is something that you will hear a lot from, from other people, is that they'll say that they'll take the actuals and they'll apply a 10 cap to it, and that's the price that they're willing to pay. That doesn't give any respect to the upside, right? So there's there's actually no consideration when, when you say that to the upside in the property. So for us, we, we like to buy properties that are screwed up, and we know there's a ton of upside in those properties. Um, and to make sure that we're buying those correctly, what we typically do is we say, after the turnaround is complete, so if we're talking about an operational turnaround, you're looking at 60 to 90 days. So once that operational turnaround is complete, we look at the 12 months that follow that, and we look at a very conservative approach to what the NOI would be in that 12-month period of time. And we would like to purchase the price at a price that is at least a 13 cap. So for example, if you were, to, let's say you were to buy a park Um, that after the turnaround in that 12 month picture that on a, as a a conservative look at the NOI, you would conservatively expect that you would have hundred thousand dollars of net operating income. Okay. We would apply a 13 cap to that and we would not want to, we would not want to pay any more than about $770,000 for that park. You know, we don't give any respect to what it's currently doing. As long as we can turn it around in 60 to 90 days We look at that 12-month picture, and if we can buy it at a price that is under $770,000, that's what we look for. In addition to that, what we also look for, we have to then look at the leverage. We have to look at what kind of financing we can get for that property. During that 12-month period of time, we need to get at least a 20% cash-on-cash return. Okay, So whatever leverage we get, it has to at least give us a 20% cash-on-cash return. So I'll walk you through, I'll walk you through some examples here, just so just so you can kind of see it at play, see it see it, see it in action here. We're currently looking at we've got a park under contract in Alabama right now. We haven't done the full diligence on it, so our you know our profit and losses uh, assumptions aren't exactly refined, but this is what we're looking at right now. This park has a net operating income of about forty thousand dollars, and we have it under contract for seven hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Now, the, the park, I'll just give you some background on it. The park gives free cable to all the residents. It has under market rents and it pays for the water and sewer. Those are all things that we can fix in 90 days. We can stop giving cable out. We can raise the rents and we can submeter the water. So we can do all of those things in 90 days. So when you take a snapshot of what that park could be in 90 day or after that 90 day period of time, you, you'll have an NOI of about $110,000 is what we're working with in our assumptions. So if you divide that by a 13 cap, you've got basically, we would like to be no more than $846,000 for that property. Okay, We're at $700,000. So the next thing is the leverage on this property. We've got some pretty good seller financing terms at 20% down. Um, it is going to take some capital. We have to do some do some repairs to, uh, to, to some of the infrastructure in that park. But we're gonna be looking at $140,000 down payment and we're, we're gonna be also putting in about $50,000 to the park. So we're gonna put $190,000 is basically gonna be the capital that we're, that we're gonna be using. Um, our debt service is right around $43,000. So you subtract that from the 110 and you have $67,000 of cash flow after debt service. If you divide that by $190,000 of capital that we're putting up to purchase the property and to fix the infrastructure issues and to submeter and all those things, then we're looking at a 35% cash-on-cash cash return. So in this case, this this park meets our criteria. It is above a 20% cash-on-cash cash return, and and when we do our when we do our turnaround we're buying it at a price that is better than a 13 cap on that 12 month snapshot. Now, the reason that we use both of those two metrics is for one thing, if you, like I said before, if you only buy on existing actuals at a 10 cap, then you will sometimes miss the the, the fact that there is upside. So if you bought a park at a 10 cap with no upside, that's not the same thing as buying a park at a 10 cap where you could virtually double the NOI, right? That's, that's Those are two completely two separate things. So you have to give respect to the upside. So we, we really like to give a lot of respect to the upside that's existing in the park. Uh, the next thing is, is that if we only had the criteria of taking that 12 month snapshot and applying a 13 cap to it and paying basically that price, if we couldn't get financing and we had to pay all cash for it, then, even though we bought it at a 13 cap, and that's an incredible deal, we'd only have a 13% cash on cash return. So, even with that, we have to we have to look at what our leverage is doing for us. Okay, so that's why we we do the, both of them. Now, on the leverage side, you can actually buy a bad deal. You could, you could do a bad deal and put. Like, let's say, for instance, you were to buy a park for a million dollars and you put a dollar down as your down payment, that you you had $1 as your down payment. And let's say that after the end of the year, after all the debt service, the cash that was left over was $2. Well, you made a 200% cash on cash return, but you, you might not have any equity. So we want to have the equity plus the cash on cash return, right? So you can't just evaluate one or the other. You have to do them both at the same time. You have to basically give respect to both the returns as it relates to how your leverage plays on them. And and then also the returns as far as how much equity creation that you're, that you're, that you're creating. Okay. So hopefully I didn't confuse anybody. Uh, I almost got confused myself a little bit there, but uh, hopefully I didn't confuse any of you guys and you, you guys are kind of seeing how, how we typically evaluate a deal. Um, And I think that that's all we have for today for this episode. Uh, But before I say goodbye, I'd like to remind you guys that we do offer a free gift for our listeners that leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Um, This free gift is the cold call script that we use for our own mobile home park business. Uh, We we buy about half of our properties, So half the properties that you hear me talking about, uh, half of these properties come from cold calling. Uh, The last one that we just talked about in Alabama came from cold calling. Okay, so we use this every day in our business and uh, it's definitely worthwhile to go over there and, and, and get your free gift there. Uh, to redeem that free gift, all you got to do is email us at gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Tell us you know who you are, uh, tell us what your screen name is, and uh, I'll send that gift to you. Um, also stop by the Mobile Home Park Academy website at mobilehomeparkacademy.com and uh, you can listen to all of our old, other, all of our previous podcast episodes and you can download our popular ebook that's called The 21 Biggest Mistakes investors make when purchasing their first mobile home park and how to avoid them Uh, this book is basically a required read whether you're brand new into the business or you're a seasoned park operator and uh, to help you avoid some of the most costly mistakes investors make when purchasing their first mobile home park so you know don't be a victim go get the book Um, but thank you again for stopping by and joining me here and uh, next week kevin will be back so it'll be a little bit more lively around here and uh, this is uh, this is your host charles d Hart signing off
0: Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.